hang up and try again. Hello, Internet. It's Jerry Gagosian. I know it's been a while. I hope you and your family are doing well in these trying and troubling times. Um, I'm sorry it's been so long since I last released a podcast, but like many of you, life got real really fast for me, and I've had to do a lot um, of self-care, aka uh, inventing a bunch of rules and structure for myself in order to maintain my sanity and not let fear get the best of me. However, during all this time, I've had the privilege of reflection and finally been able to start absorbing all of these thoughts and ideas surrounding art that I've been avoiding or misinterpreting or ignoring. Um, It's really interesting to see where we've come as a species, where we've come as a culture, where we've come as a community of art lovers, and also where we've come as an art industry. Honestly, um, after I was outed, I thought about deleting my Instagram account, um, but that happened about seven or eight days before the pandemic hit and shelter in place orders were sent out. Um, So we all went inside myself included, obviously, and suddenly I realized that no one knew what to do and that the only way to understand this crisis was to get on the phone and talk to people from around the world. I figured that we could somehow begin to cobble answers together by putting different perspectives and thoughts and experiences in one place. That is the birth of AM Art Radio. I chose to name the show AM Art Radio, by the way, because this is an unrehearsed podcast and the sound quality isn't what I'd call studio quality, as I'm sure you can hear. Since then, I've had the pleasure to speak with many brilliant in-stage individuals who inadvertently have inspired me to re-examine my own relationship with art. In these conversations, what kept coming up over and over again was this long overdue inevitability of change and an insistence to give art a chance to finally do what it has always done best, to create a space for us to think and to breathe, escape into the realm of ideas and aesthetics without any constraint except for the ones that we choose. This week, Um, I decided not to necessarily call someone and look for advice, but instead to just dive head on into discussing an art practice with its creator, with its artist. And this week I had the privilege of speaking with Kentora Davis about her practice and how we construct ideas through the use of language, and interestingly enough, how she constructs images through language. The conversation led me exactly to where I like to be, deeply in love with art. I hope you enjoy the conversation. But before before we get started on that, I wanted to share with you the interview I did with my newly hired assistant, Gunnar Dangier, a.k.a. Zoe. 
Hi, who are you? My name is Gunnar Danger. I am an artist from New Orleans, Louisiana, and I am applying for the intern position for Jerry Gagosian. What is your educational background? I studied at an arts conservatory in New Orleans before making my way to the Bay Area for my undergraduate studies. I am currently a student at Stanford University where I study art practice and computer science. And I am currently the president of the Professional Art Society of Stanford. Do you have any previous gallery experience that would come in handy for this position? I was named the greatest intern of all time at Gagosian in 2018. And during my time there, I learned how to wax poetic about paintings, print paper checklists, and schmooze with venture capitalists in my many Italian fitted suits. Interesting. Well, given your education and your experiences and the potential of you coming to work here for me, where do you see yourself going in, say, the next five years? Ooh, after staving off a field of violently passionate female suitors, fresh off my return from Elon Musk's Mars mission, I envision myself painting portraits of President Jonathan Taylor Thomas in a quiet cabin in Vail, Colorado. Let me ask you, do you come from an art-collecting family? Yes, my family hosts an extensive selection of artworks across their extensive selection of summer homes. Interesting. Who's your father? My father is the esteemed and noble Jean-Claude Donjou, who is set to inherit the vast Lacroix family fortune. Interesting. Where do they, where do they summer? Where don't they summer? We promenade across private coasts along the Adriatic. My parents have a nest egg in Barcelona and have been eyeing a chic summer yurt in the Central Asian steppes. Hmm. Tell me about their collection. Mm. My parents have a penchant for Picabia portraits from the early 40s, Julian Schnabel plate paintings, and one-eyed clowns by George Kondo. We have a cozy cottage practically wallpapered with Rudolf Stingle wallpaper paintings and a fake pool filled to the brim with Coons inflatables. Let me ask you, how do you think your parents would feel about buying large portions of exhibitions that we'll be putting on, depending on whether or not they sell? Well, my parents are very supportive of my burgeoning career and have been more than willing to finance my various endeavors in art collecting. It's very reassuring. Let me ask you, do you have any major institutional connections or financial connections I should be aware of? I spent time hoarding startup shares in a Stanford incubator last summer, along with my peers in big tech and venture capital. My many friends in the Stanford Business School are itching to enter the exclusive sphere of San Francisco collectors. That is a white rhino indeed. Everyone's looking for that. Let me ask you, how many years may I rely on you to work for free? I'd say however long it takes for me to be promoted from intern to associate director. Okay. What is your capacity for tedium? Ooh, nothing revs up my engine more than putting together a 500-page PDF. 
I adore data input, resizing photos, printing checklists, stocking catalogs, and I get giddy at the mere thought of alphabetical order. Gunnar, have you ever been berated in the name of art? Absolutely. I've been called incompetent, blind, underwhelming, lethally stupid, lacking distinction, smarmy and charmless, and awkward. How good are you at reading a room? Although I am legally illiterate, I have a keen sense and ability to identify financial targets. In a Where's Waldo children's book, I once was able to spot Stefan Simkowitz. Can you feign complete disinterest while simultaneously being aware enough to make sure no one gets within six feet of a painting? Oh, yes. My relationship with non-wealthy gallery attendees is similar to my relationship with crack cocaine in the 80s. When guests ask for prices, names, or bathroom access, in the words of Nancy Reagan, just say no. From which distance can you identify a Birkin bag? I can spot the $20,000 difference between a Togo HAC Endless Road Birkin 50 Blue de Prusse and a shiny Milotikus Crocodile Birkin 25 Rose Scheheradaze from miles away. How are your memorization skills? Impeccable. I'm going to have to ask you to repeat this back to me, and please pay attention. I want it back verbatim. One small half-calf soy cafe latte at 120 degrees, two Americanos with a shot of hot, organic, full-fat cow's milk on the side for one, and steamed almond milk for the other, one oat milk latte iced, and a cup of black coffee with cubed brown sugar on the side. Yes, so you want one small half-calf soy latte at 120 degrees, two Americanos with a shot of hot organic full-fat cow's milk on the side for one, and steamed almond milk for the other, one oat milk latte ice, and a cup of black coffee with cubed brown sugar on the side. Let me ask you, the coffee shop is out of cubed brown sugar. What do you do? Bring refined white sugar cubes back to the gallery or a packet of brown sugar? Well, luckily I keep my own cubed brown sugar on the side on me at all times. What do you say to someone when they ask in a very gauche and forward way the price of an artwork? Well, I tell them. We don't discuss prices here. If you wish to express interest in the work, I can take your contact information and the sales director will be in touch with you. What do you currently have in your collection? Excellent. And do you actually contact the sales director? If they look wealthy enough, I do. Hypothetically, are any of the works in the exhibition ever available? Nothing is ever available. Ever. Let me ask you, just out of curiosity, which era of Coons do you prefer? Remember, in my book, there are wrong answers. Ooh, 
I'm a sucker for the Made in Heaven era, the iconic classicism exuding from his sculpted self-portraits, the plasticized passion billowing beneath the polychrome paints. It's absolutely riveting. How do you answer a client's question even if you don't know the answer? Mm, yes. Well, I mainsplain moronic details through a series of non sequiturs. I slow blink while making a non point, and I use rhythm and cadence for emphasis. Which artists do you claim to like when shrouding yourself in a cloak of good taste? Uh, I'd say Kusama, Leonard Cohen, Harmony Corinne, photography of Sven Marquardt, uh, David Lynch, Robin F. Williams, and any artist that Karma or JTT shows. Excellent. And who do you actually like? Ooh, Henry Darger, Miguel Calderon, uh, Dan Colin, Jamie and Juliana Villani, Calvin Marcus, Philip Guston, and of course, Gunnar Danger. Well, if you are to receive the position, would you prefer to go by Zoe or Chloe? A billion percent Zoe. Excellent. Well, I'm going to review your application and uh, meditate on this. And when I come to a conclusion as to whether or not you're good enough to work for free for me, I will be in touch with you. Thank you, Madame Gagosian. Hi, Kintura. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast today. And uh, thank you, Gunnar, for coming on and being my co-host today. Kintura Davis is an artist who's based... I, actually, I want to I double-check you on this. You're based in Los Angeles, Connecticut... And Ghana, is that correct? Uh, that that can be updated. I'm more <laughs> in LA. Um, my heart is still in Ghana. Um, I get these days. I, I used to live there. Um, these days, I get there about uh, once a year, twice if, I'm, if everything's going my way. But uh, yeah, currently, I'm mostly in LA. Okay. Okay. I'm going to circle back to you on that. And then Gunner, who you guys may be listening and going like, who is Gunner? Gunner is Jerry Gagosian's Zoe and Chloe. He's my, he's my right-hand man helping me now with some of these projects because things have gotten a little, a little out of hand and there's a little too much going on and I needed help. And Gunner slipped into my DMs one day <laughs> and asked me to be a part of a, a Stanford uh, professional art practices series. And I usually regard myself as the least uh, professional person in the professional art world. Um, so I'm sure I'm not going to be very helpful to him in that regard. But um, Gunner has been started helping me and he's he's amazing and he's smart and probably going to go on to do very big things um and but for now he has to pay his dues and be my unpaid intern so 
welcome welcome on the and show. here i am <laughs> and thank you so much for your help you're awesome gunner is actually probably the first person um that i know who's taking the initiative to figure out what an actual virtual exhibition is versus a lot of these galleries and people that are calling websites glorified websites um virtual exhibitions um so we'll also talk more about that later. But anyways, back to you, Kintora. Um, so is your family from Ghana? No, my family uh, is very American. My mom's from Arkansas and my dad's from Kansas. Uh, I ended up, yeah. <laughs> um, I ended up in Ghana after, um, I quit my gallery job and uh, I wasn't quite in the place where my own work was sustainable. And so I have um, some friends that live there who started a clothing line and they manufacture there. So I actually moved there to work. Um, the, the brand name is Ose Doro. Um, yeah, and what started off as just like a six month gig turned into almost two years whoa yeah what was that like uh it was amazing I love it I love it um I want to have a place there someday sooner than later hopefully but um yeah it's beautiful and it's it's interesting in some ways it reminds me of LA because so I was living in Accra um the capital and it's a beach city and mm -hmm. there's a lot of traffic um, and it's very laid back. Mm -hmm. So is that there was some familiarity there. Um, mm -hmm. But I loved it because you can get all these different sort of experience, all these different kind of lifestyles in a very small area. Like it's metropolitan, but also, you know, you can escape to the beach or, you know, smaller towns um, that are, feel really remote, even though they're not that far away. Amazing. And what was the, uh, what was the sort of culture, like, what was the culture like there and how is it different? Obviously it's going to be different, but I mean, what was striking to you about the culture there? I mean, one thing that really struck me partly because I've, I've grown up in, in LA mm -hmm. and, the fact that it's like so laid back and the sort of the culture seems very casual to me maybe compared to other places and so i went when i went i took my cutoff shorts uh like flip-flops um you know just like super casual you know um like laid back clothing and you go there and everybody dresses like no matter like what they're doing um uh, as a career or you know what their livelihoods are people there dress and so I was like I went I, I showed up and without looking feeling cute or fly at all so um, <laughs> I have to kind of figure figure stuff out do some uh a little bit of shopping <laughs> while I was out oh there people God. are very smart which I love 
Yeah, I'm so like anti-athleisure pajama wearing culture. Um, and I, I just love when I see people putting effort into how they look, you know? Yeah. yeah. And the like- thing is, what I is it, I think in our heads, we make it up where some form of dressing up is too much of an effort, but there are so many ways to like put yourself together that feels really easy. Like it's not uncomfortable. So I had to figure that out. Yeah. What my version of that's cool. Yeah. I, I feel, I, I feel like I've lived in so many different places, like style wise, um, you know, LA kind of has, it's really does have its own distinct dressing style. Uh, despite the fact that we're so like homogenized in so many ways, there is this like big Lebowski chic thing going on where everyone kind of always looks like what they're wearing could have, they could have slept in it the day before. Uh, or the night before, (laughs) and then, like, New York, New York still has sort of, like, a little bit of a button, a little more, like, tailoring or sort of tight tailoring. I don't know how to explain it. Like, they're just, it's the East Coast. I don't know. It's a little preppier. It's a little more, like, reined in. But then I, like, you know, I grew up in Miami. Like my, I lived in Europe for a long time. I feel like I am a mishmash of all of those things. And uh, I, I feel like in LA, people are always like at, literally asking me like, why are you so dressed up? <laughs> Which is kind of embarrassing. Well, do you still feel that way though? I mean, like, are you? You mean during the pandemic or having lived here? Uh, I don't know. I still like, I collect clothes and my best friend actually designs clothes, actually two of like my really good friends. And so I get to be the lucky recipient of like anything that didn't work or they don't want or whatever. So um, I just try to own it. Um, and I mean, I, I like it, but yeah, I get a little self-conscious of it sometimes because I know a lot of people, especially in LA, like, I, I think they think it's like a posturing thing to dress up. Like, know. like you try it hard or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, sometimes I feel self-conscious about that too. If I leave the house, it's like, I might do something to like knock it down in terms of levels of level between casual and dressy. If that's like, don't wear a heel, (laughs) wear tennis shoes with the dress or something, you know, something like that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, when I was preparing for the podcast, I was online stalking you and I was like, she has good style. Actually, I swear to God, I thought that this morning. I was like, I like her style. Um, so you're pulling it off. Gunnar, what do you, what do you guys wear up at, at Stanford? Oh my gosh. It's such a mix. Cause you have people coming from all over. So I feel like you have your Southern fratty vibes and then you have your, you know, Northeast kind of apparel coming out. And then it's also just perfect weather all the time. Mm-hmm. So you got a lot of dudes in shorts, you know, <laughs> but. That's the other I- thing you don't- like to layer often here 
Mm-hmm. And so that kind of ruled out a lot of necessity for like all having all these options. I mean, now having like lived on the East Coast for a while, um, abroad for a while, I feel like I'm also, my style is sort of a hodgepodge too. Yeah. Have you been like getting, this question's for both of you. Have you guys been like, what have your, what's your style, what's your uh, style been during quarantine? Uh, some days I try and make an effort. Some days I'm like from the bed to the room where my studio is. That's, uh, yeah, I'm like, I'm going to work and I'll put on something still usually barefoot, but, uh, with, with my outfit on. Yeah. But that's realizing that it's not hard to, look nice and so much of my clothes are comfortable even though they still look a little dressed up um, yeah that not that hard to do yeah I do you ever wear makeup at home no usually (laughs) some every once in a while I'll put on lipstick just to be like uh I did it (laughs) yeah um but yeah, I usually, yeah, no, no. I, so I run and I actually have been running around Silver Lake Reservoir, like since this pandemic started. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to lie to you. Like I wear, rip, I wear lipstick to go running. <laughs> you wear a mask? <laughs> no, I can't breathe with the mask on. Okay. Okay. Cause I, so I go out and I put on my mask and a couple of times I put on lipstick and I'm like, girl, you're ridiculous. Cause I get home <laughs> it's like smeared all over my face. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now my- I just do the eyebrows. I'll like brush my eyebrows down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the other day I, um, Oh my God, this is so ridiculous. Okay, so I swear we're going to talk about art, but um, <laughs> the other day I was like, I'm single and I'm like, you know, like I, I see people at three places right now. The reservoir when I run, the grocery store or CVS, which has become my favorite fucking store on the planet right now. Um, they're taking all of my money. But, uh, like, the thing is about the mask is you can't really tell who's hot and who's not with the mask. But oh everybody God. is, like, kind of hot to me right now with the mask. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to make a big mistake one day. Like, I'll be giving someone, like, the eye, and then they'll, like, I don't know, pull the mask down to talk and I'll be like, oh shit, I didn't see that coming. Wait, do you watch that show Fleabag? Yeah, I love that movie, or that show. There was that episode where she saw that guy on the train and I think she, she, for a hot second, she thought he was cute until he smiled. (laughs) (laughs) And then she saw his teeth. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I know. And uh, actually, I predict, like, I predict in a post-COVID world, like, 
we're going to have to all get sick bodies because it doesn't matter what your face looks like anymore because everything's covered. You have to like, you have to like have real, like you have to be in shape. <laughs> because that's the only thing. <laughs> I, I've, I've also, like you said, gone through different versions of myself through quarantine. Mm-hmm. And I did go through a, a workout bay phase where I was like consistently doing yoga and I got a trampoline, a, like one of those mini trampolines mm-hmm. and did that and myself. And then <laughs> now I'm back to, I don't know, being myself. Yeah. My usual. I've been kayaking. Kayaking. Oh, yeah. Just going down to the bayou and kayaking, bringing my sister and brother. You kayak in L.A.? He lives in Louisiana. This is in New Orleans. You live in Louisiana? I didn't even know. Did you say that? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. I missed that. I thought you said Stanford, and I was, yeah, I thought that's where you, I thought you were in California. Oh, that's amazing. Bayou boy. Yep. Do you see any like gators out there? Oh my gosh, yes. And my dogs like went into the bayou and then uh-huh. like there was an alligator in the water and we were like, oh my god, we gotta get him out. But they're just doing their thing, just sort of chilling and swimming, you know? Just yeah. <laughs> my parents live on the water in Florida, like the the we we live right near the Everglades National Park. Um, we're like, I think we're basically 11 miles from where that starts. And then it goes for, you know, like 350 miles or whatever. And, uh, so we have gators in our backyard all the time and people's Yorkies get eaten. Like, I don't know what it is about gators and Yorkies, but like, they love to eat Yorkies. I can't tell you how many of my neighbors Yorkies have been eaten like in my lifetime. <laughs> but they are the most annoying dog. So <laughs> um, um anyway, uh I guess we should we should turn this conversation around um before I offend some Yorkie lover. Um and let's let's talk about every your favorite topic. I'm guessing you. <laughs> um, no, it's favorite topic. Yeah. Oh my god, we're artists. We love to talk about ourselves. <laughs> okay, let's go. Okay, or maybe I'm projecting. Um, okay, so would you? Um, when did you start making art? Actually, that's a good place to start. Uh, I don't remember a time where I wasn't making art. Um, Yeah, since I was a kid, and it was partly with the, or not partly, a a lot with the encouragement of my parents. My dad's an artist, so it kind of runs in the family. Mm -hmm. Used to take us out to um, uh, my sisters and I, out to um, like Pasadena, the Arroyo, and like mm-hmm. we do plein air painting 
lessons. <laughs> oh. um, he actually still, he still goes out to paint and sometimes teaches people like plain air painting skills. So, yeah. So did you sort of grow up with an innate feeling that you were you were born an artist or you were always going to be an artist or was there a moment when it sort of dawned on you like this is this is my calling this is my thing um i yeah again it's i i don't ever remember wanting to do anything else until after undergrad but uh growing up so my dad was a set painter for tv and film so i had like some picture of one, one way to be an artist and make a living. Um, and, but I, I didn't realize that. So I sort of ran it and just sort of scooted through, uh, you know, through high school and um, undergrad, like not questioning this desire to be an artist. Uh, it wasn't until after I graduated when it really was like, oh, I have to be practical and actually figure out how to do this. And that was really right. hard. Yeah. So interesting. Definitely want to talk to you more about that. Um, but your work from everything I was reading really focuses on liminality. Correct me if I'm wrong. And um, I think that's why I kind of wanted to start with probably the most difficult question or idea, which is why art for you? Because I, I understand that it was, you know, part of your childhood, but um, I know for me, and I was struck by this when I was reading about your work, like I can't exactly put my finger on the thingness of art, what it is or what, you know, what it is that gets me off so much that I think about it morning, noon, and night, every single day of my life. And I pretty much have since, I mean, I remember art officially taking over my life when I was like uh, 22. That's when it was like solidified. But I'm always so curious if to hear people sort of try to articulate what it is about art specifically that does it for them, that just gives them that mm, that feeling that they want to dedicate their life to it. Yeah, I, I think I was, to start, it was making things with my hands and that I can make something and feel really satisfied or at some level satisfied with the result and thinking through like, while being satisfied, always like wanting to do more or think through an idea. Maybe that thinking through certain ideas came later, but I think the first aspect of it was some sort of tactile experience and um, yeah, working with my hands. And I think, I think shifting to how I felt about art in general was experiencing other artworks. Um, I mean, I didn't, I didn't go to, we didn't go to museums a ton as kids, but we went every once in a while and they, and those experiences were really memorable. Um, so my, like we'd go up to the Getty Museum 
And one of the things that I was super fascinated by um, was the uh, illuminated manuscripts that they had, they always had on view. And just seeing like really inventive combinations of image and text. And I didn't, like this was back when I was copying cartoons and animation. Like I always knew I was interested in portraiture, um, but I, yeah, I didn't foresee myself at all like thinking about language and our relationship with language and text. But um, yeah, there was there were these early experiences where I saw these like really beautiful manuscripts um, that were decorated. And then, oh, I don't remember what year, but um, the the King Tut exhibition, like like ancient Egyptian art, and being exposed to that and being really fascinated by that too. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, those that's some of the more memorable um, experiences that sort of instilled some confidence in what looking at art could do. Even if it was like a cultural object, like the way we see it now, some some ancient objects, you know, now as a form of art, that was really fascinating. Before we go further, because this is so interesting to me, but would you describe to people who can't, who aren't familiar with your work, just a, a little bit about what you do? Sure. So I mostly make portraits and um, I'm really interested, um, like I said, in, in thinking about our relationship with language. Um, and so I make images by writing a text in repetition and layering that text to render the image. Um, and so that came out of um, a period where I was like dissatisfied with the paintings I was making and was just kind of like keeping a notebook. Um, and there was a point where in the notebook, some a little sketch I made overlapped with some notes that I made and realizing that the quality of a written line is, is no different than the quality of a drawn line. Except with the written line, we've assigned meaning to a series of marks. So I, I got really interested in um, being able to make an image entirely from marks that have meaning, that are not inherently have meaning, but meaning that we've assigned um, to operate in a certain way. So in the way that we write, we can see it, the sequence of marks and get meaning from it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's how it started. And I've sort of been building off that um, ever since then. So interesting to me. Um, I I could say so much about this. Like I was actually just talking to someone else for the podcast who's not even an artist actually. Um, and he's Chinese and he was telling, I was like, what are you doing? Like during the, you know, dur during all this pandemic stuff. And he was like, well, honestly, I've been um, copying like Zen texts. Um, and it's like that meditation that he was explaining has become like very important to him, uh, whether he fully understands it or not. Um, just the the sort of repetition of language and the, the gesture of the hand. And it's, it's so interesting how like 
you know, when you think about like your body and your brain, right? You're like, well, who's in charge? Is my body in charge? Is my brain in charge? My body is what produces these sounds, but then my brain has assigned these. <laughs> you know, it's it's very chicken and the egg y. Um, yeah. And then, like, to, to, like, you know, further complicate it and irritate maybe some of our listeners, you know, I always think about, like, the beginning of the Bible. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And I always just think about how, like, Lang spoken language was like the first step towards um, towards like manifesting um, reality, you know. And of course, I'm thinking of that poetically, not literally. But um, yeah, in in yeah. relationship to your work, it's very very interesting. Yeah, I mean that's interesting because I think sure in one way we can think about the sort of like spiritual religious connotation but I think it applies quite broadly like the fact that we can um you know send send a text tweet a message and that have this sort of like ongoing effect in the way that it reaches other people and then that can then spread in multiplicity um yeah yeah and and then even with like laws that a decree or something can dictate what we can do, what we can't do, where we go, and just sort of the power that is infused with how we use language, that's really fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. So what are the, um, so you make stamps, right? you make stamps with text and then you paint with those stamps. I, I, I just want to make sure I, I'm understanding. So some of the drawings are handwritten where I'm just using my own print or cursive to render the image. Um, a lot of the more recent ones are with this, with these stamps. I don't make them. I've had stamps custom made, but I found some that are, you know, sort of like ready-mades, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, that are just available um and uh yeah so they're individual alphabet stamps and they're just shy of an inch high mm -hmm. and so um with the drawings um uh, there's like a, a bit of preparation there's a grid that goes on the paper or whatever surface i'm drawing on and the grid helps me organize the information that i'm going to stamp or yeah, in this case, stamp um, onto the surface. And so basically yeah. I'm stamping a text from left to right one letter at a time. Oh my God. You must have the patience of a saint. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard, I've heard. <laughs> yeah. And so what are the texts usually that you're writing? So I, I normally, work, yeah, I normally work in a series. So I'll decide on some aspect about the way we use language um, and develop a series around that. So one series was uh, really thinking about how we continue to invent language and that it's not a fixed thing that our mm -hmm. lexicon continues to grow and change and shift meaning of words shift over time that sort of thing so it was more mm -hmm. about invention it was using 
newly invented or recently invented words and stamping those out in repetition. Um, the most recent series that I've been doing is called Blur in the Interest of Precision. And I think this is really where thinking about liminality came in. Um, in one sense, it was, I was thinking, thinking a lot about the limits of language. It does so much for us, but in so many ways it can fall short in describing an experience. And um, so I was thinking about, in some ways, paradoxes or phrases that seem contradictory in and of itself or, or sort of develop some sense of a duality or something and use this, using phrases like that. So one of the drawings in the series is actually stamped, you know, the text is blur in the interest of precision. Um, another one is, uh, let's see, one is called the Poetics of the Pivot. And Would you so say I that again? I'm sorry, you kind of cut out. Poetics of what? The Poetics of a Pivot. Oh, okay. Uh, P-I-V. Yeah. Um, and so that was thinking about, I, I don't normally like, give a definition to the phrases, they're pretty open-ended. But to explain like why I chose that phrase, um, I was thinking about this idea of like motion and being in motion and being stationary and what is a kind of condition or um, situation that uh, straddles both. And so a pivot is being stationary, at, like fixed at one point, but it's, it's still, um, uh, describes a movement. So thinking about, yeah, again, how two things that we have sort of like, um, in our, in the way we use language seem like binary oppositions where they coexist or where two opposites might touch. Interesting. <clears throat> and the, the actual figures in the work, um, who, who are they? I've seen some of them are you, I think. Some of them are me. I usually start a series with because <laughs> I'm trying to figure something out. Um, but then I branch out to uh, friends or friends of friends. So it's usually, yeah, people I know pretty well or just like a, a degree of separation. And um, there's some... Uh, some of my closest friends repeat in the drawings. Um, mm. But yeah, there's always like some familiarity with uh, the people that I choose to draw. And then I'm, I'm wondering how those figures then relate back to the text that you use. So I used to, I used to, it used to be, the drawings used to be more one-to-one -one where it was, um, it, there was a period where like the text very directly applied to the person in the image. I've sort of mm -hmm. distanced myself from that because I'm more interested in how all of these constructions in language um, are used to then understand other people or the world around us. And so they're less like biographical to that person and more, uh, the figure then in a way becomes a a window or a frame or a lens to think about something else or to unpack how our language might, um, yeah, frame how we see a person 
and the portrait or the people around us. I've also noticed that you paint mainly within the grayscale. Is that intentional? Or I mean, is that is that specific to these works or um, do you also paint in color? So, I mean, all the, only recently have I begun, begun to introduce color in the text drawings. Um, for a long time, I was like com really committed to uh, thinking about how we normally experience text on a page. And so it's oftentimes black mm -hmm. on white paper. Um, and so most of the drawings are, are that. Um, just to, yeah, just show this commitment to the history of writing. Um, recently, I've started thinking about or adding these sort of color grounds on the paper um, because I think more and more I realize I'm also interested in perception, perception facilitated by language, but then perception facilitated by sight. And so there, um, there are a few different ways I'll lay down colors. Sometimes it's through a printmaking process called monoprinting, um, where it, it's a way to apply like a thin layer of varied color on the paper. Um, some of the newer ones, uh, I'm really kind of leaning into the, the gridness of the drawings. And so each square in the grid is color. Um, colored differently to sort of create this like pixelated background. Um, yeah, and I, I don't know where that will go. Um, I'm, I still really love the black and white ones, um, but I'm kind of interested in where the color ones might go too. Mm -hmm. And I was, um, excuse me while I diverge for a second, but um, it has to do with you, but a girl, uh, a friend of mine, actually an artist that I've worked with before Robin Kang she uh, has been doing this amazing series where she's been she's a weaver and mm. she has been spending a lot of time learning ancient weaving techniques in Peru and when she she came back from one of her most recent uh, trips she was telling me how these women that still practice this, you know, th many thousands year old tradition, when they are throughout the entire process of creating these weavings, um, the way that they believe that like energy is stored, because a lot of times these weavings become like, um, you know, coverings that, you know, so, uh, not soldiers, but warriors used to wear and things for the house that would like protect you and like all these different things. And what they would do is the entire time, depending on what the purpose of the textile would be, they would have like these specific prayers and they would say mm -hmm. that they would either sing or say the prayers like continuously while they're making this weaving and that's sort of the process that they went through in like imbuing these objects with meaning. And I'm just thinking about, you know, what you're doing and the process of how you're creating these images and how you're using this like 
these repetitive phrases and words to like imbue meaning and then you step back and you're like oh I'm looking at a portrait or you know I I they're they're really it's it's almost like a prayer and again I'm I swear I'm not usually so like woo woo religious but there just is something there this idea of like the 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 repetition of language over and over again um until the the thingness of the art sort of uh soaks up the the language that's helping construct the actual image yeah i'm so glad you brought this up because um this is something that's like fairly recently really is a strong interest to me. Um, in fact, I was talking, uh, I did an interview with Diedrich Brackens the other day, um, because I, I'm in the zone of really thinking about weaving, and, and he's a fantastic weaver as well. Um, but this relationship between text and textile, and that the, you know, the etymology of text, the word text coming from this word for woven, um, and thinking about those relationships, and actually, when I was in uh, grad school, um, I took an archaeology class on about the invention of writing, and I chose to write this paper about Egyptian textiles. And uh, it dawned on me that um, weaving uh, as an invention far preceded writing as an invention, and so weaving is like an earlier version an earlier form of encoding uh, information into a material. And so that that material, besides like this idea of imbuing maybe a sort of a, I don't know, sort of a spirituality into a cloth by speaking a prayer over it as, as someone's weaving it, it also indicates it's a place. Like when textiles were traded across, you know, different territories um, that they are also a record of where they came from and they have certain patterns and things that um, can communicate something. And I mean, not to go on and on, recently, or not recently, a few years ago, I picked up a book from, um, there's a, a paper store in Culver City called Hiromi and they, they specialize in Japanese papers. And so they have this book that describes um, a sort of old Japanese process uh, or a process that was developed in Japan um, where you can make paper into thread and then weave that thread into a cloth. And that's really interesting to me. And the thing I got really excited about, I found a second book about it that went into more detail about the history. And there's this myth about how that process was developed that um, uh, I think in Japan, some there was like a conflict and some spies needed to get across enemy lines with a message. And so you paper was accessible, but because people were being searched, it needed to, you know, they needed to figure out a way to, um, to hide it. So they got paper, wrote this message, um, processed that into threads, wove it into a cloth, cut it into a garment, wore it across um, uh, enemy lines, and then undid everything to reveal this message. And so I've actually been experimenting with this process of weaving, first making a text drawing on the paper, and then uh, 
developing that or processing that into threads. And so what, as a result, there are all these like subtle marks in the paper that's just evidence of the text that's embedded in it. Um, and then sort of weaving that to produce a, a, a kind of cloth. Um, so yeah, I'm, that's something I'm thinking about a lot these days. Wow, you just galaxy brained me. <laughs> That's amazing. Holy shit. That's so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I I mean, have you have you touched these we I mean, I guess you're working on your own. Do they feel like uh what do they feel like? I mean, mine are sort of so mine are particular um a little bit different because the the weaving is incorporated into these frames that I designed. And so the weaving goes next to, it's like the frame is partitioned, the weaving's on one side, the portrait's on, on the other side of the partition. Um, so the, the, the setup of the, the frame basically functions as the loom. So I'm just like weaving into it. So it's kind of a, a looser, more open weave just because I can't get, um, what's called the warp, the warp thread. Um, it's hard to get them so close together, as close as you would find on a regular or other sort of more conventional uh, weaving looms. Uh, but I, so when I, you know, as I started to get obsessed with, with this process, I found a lady who teaches it. She's Japanese, but um, she's, I guess, Japanese Canadian. She lives in Canada. And she was teaching a demo at the textile museum in Toronto. So I went out there to watch her, you know, teach this process. And so I got to like see and touch some of it. And it looks and feels like an it, maybe not any other cloth. It maybe looks like hmm, like a, a linen silk blend or something. Oftentimes the work mm. of the weaving is silk and the weft is the paper thread. Sometimes it's both, both the warp and the weft are paper thread. But um, yeah, it's really strong. Like there's several steps to get it to the point where you can weave with it, including twisting it to add strength to it. But um, yeah, it looks and feels like any other kind of cloth, uh, sort of like natural um, cloth. Wow. That you feel, yeah. Well, it's really, it's you also interesting that you said that um, that you you said that weavings you know uh, predate actual written language as far as we know and um, I, th I think that that's probably why fashion will also sort of always be so important to culture um, because it there is something like pre-verbal about fashion like you don't and and even on like a very like loose it, in a very like offhanded way like you you know um like good style when you see it but you also like like the more adept you become at like reading style um as a language itself like the more you can sort of infer about a person and the world from which they're coming um, and so it's really interesting how all these things sort of tie in together to the idea of language. And I was just listening to some other podcast about um, 
how in in post uh, or not even post like when France was occupied by the Nazis in uh, in the forties, fashion became so like even more important than it had already been to French culture because there were all these ways to like signal that they were not Nazis and that they were rebelling. And there was like just these tiny things, like things about like how they just like would do a certain stitch, a certain stitch on your, or like a hem on your dress could be like a, a very subtle, like rebellion, you know, or like using a certain kind of cufflink or, um, you know, just all these different things to sort of draw a divide and say, like, this is who I am, or I'm in opposition to this, or this is what I'm for. Um, it's, it's wild. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, it's so interesting, because there are all these ways to, um, you know, gather or gain meaning from, from things that we may not at the surface see, but we're always we're always reading everything around us and sort of interpreting things. And sometimes, you know, what somebody's wearing may only be like more so an indicator of access to. Um, and so that's maybe another, another way to think about it. Um, but yeah, cloth has so much to say. Yeah. Oh, shoot. I had a, I had a question for you and my, my mind just went off of it. I hope it comes back. Um, damn it. I hate when that happens. Um, <laughs> but yes, if, I mean, yeah, if I took a, took a great class in college that was about um, actually like style and textiles. And that was the first time that I watched Paris is Burning. Um, and I, before that, I, I didn't really understand like what the, the power that, um, garments hold in like determining sort of your quote unquote place in the world or your imagined place in the world or the, the place you want to be in yeah. the world, you know, it just hadn't really occurred yeah. to me, but I remember my question. My question is, does, okay. So you said earlier that you sort of supplant these more open-ended I don't they're not riddles they're like open-ended statements right that you're putting into the work do you do you feel um a lot of pressure when you're making your work to um keep the statements open-ended or do you feel like there's something wrong with making a definitive statement or like what's the I can imagine like if I, if I sat there and thought as much and like was trying to make textiles out of paper with language on them, like I can imagine that the actual statements that you're putting into your work become supremely important. Yeah. I mean, I think because I'm it's right now focused on this more poetic space. So, so one way I think about language is it's part oftentimes used to carve out categories and the categories and the way we use them are to distinguish one thing from another and going back to like thinking about liminality and, and being and in betweenness, there are this sort of like gray areas between categories 
because I, I like, especially now with the quarantine, like every so often I always like take a deep, long, like long period of time to think about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Like I'm always questioning what I'm doing and why I'm doing it often more so now that we're sort of like quarantined and, I, and I'm in all the time and in my studio all the time. And it seems like a good mm-hmm. time to reevaluate, but yeah, I, I think a lot about why, how, why we un- misunderstand e- each other people often enough to, you know, be frustrated sometimes with language and not just that, like just, um, yeah, there's, there's, there are some, some limits um, with only using language in a very sort of like direct way. And I think there's a lot that can come from thinking about um, the poetic. And I think it slows down how, it could slow down how we leap to conclusions about something. So if a phrase is open-ended to, if somebody wants to take the time to think through what are, what could this possibly mean? My, I mean, this is just an assumption, but I think most, it seems like most people realize that it can have multiple meanings and what sort of like duality or yeah, what a sort of like broader landscape to understanding something and like taking the time to hone in on like what you're perceiving and why it is you're perceiving something to be a certain way. Um, that's just, that's a really interesting space. The other thing is, you know, going back to our conversation about uh, weaving and, and meaning being sort of embedded into um, an image or a surface or something. The, the fact that like the, all the texts are pretty illegible in the drawings. And that's partly by the nature in which I try to render them. Um, I Usually the, the text is never like a secret. So I normally name or title the, uh, the drawings with the phrase that I'm using to mm-hmm. render the image. But the space of thinking about illegibility, like from a distance, most people can't tell at all that it's made of text. And then you mm-hmm. move closer and then it starts to break apart a bit and you might be able to sort of like pulse it out a bit. Um, that, that It's really interesting to me because I think it indicates a sense of embodiment. And again, going back to like thinking about our relationship with language, that who we are is has so much to do with the ideas that we've absorbed via the apparatus of language. And so we're all sort of embodiments of these ideas and concepts that we've, um, yeah, that we've sort of attached ourselves to um, or absorbed through repetition, repetition over time. And so the portraits in a way then become, I mean, I, I try to approach it, approach it as a sort of like parallel to encountering another person who embodies all these ideas. When I first encounter them, I don't get all of them. And you can only start to, see what and understand someone over time through what they might have to say um, or communicate in various ways so do you ever like see oh I'm sorry 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 I didn't mean to cut you off I was just gonna ask if you ever if you've ever sort of 
snuck something sneaky or subversive into <laughs> them? Or is that like against the rules in the Kintora universe? Well, the, the weavings that I t mentioned with the paper thread, those texts, mm -hmm. I have not decided to say what they say because oh. I getting into this like embodiment, it's infused in the material and you only get sort of hints that it might have information in it. Um, there was, I mean, I'm not going to lie. There was like, when I first started making these text drawings, um, mm -hmm. I did a drawing of an X with a very... <laughs> I already love where the story is going. Please say more. Oh, man. Uh, I mean, it, I think if I remember correctly, it basically listed different kinds of poisons. Mm. And the text I used to render his face. <laughs> Damn, girl. Um, I when I was in when I was younger, I went to boarding school, and when we would get in trouble, we had to write something called lines, and it was literally oh, yeah. like you know, like Bart Simpson, like I will never blah 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 again. Mm -hmm. And I remember yeah. one time we got like we collectively got like it was a like girls' school, like we collectively got like some insane punishment, like a thousand lines or something for something. We had like a really short period to like complete them all. And I think at like 700 and something, I just broke down and inside one of my lines, I was like, fuck you. <laughs> and then kept writing. And I would, I mean, it sounds small, but it was a really strict school. And I, I still actually can't believe I did that. Like, I was just so mad. And I was like, I've, I've got to put something in here, you know? <laughs> I have that, um story about the designer Alexander McQueen when he was like a youngster working for a tailor and mm -hmm. he wrote with the I think with the sort of like tailor's chalk inside of one of these suits that he had to tailor he like wrote this message like fuck you or something like that that <laughs> so awesome sneakily talking shit um yeah. <laughs> I don't do it anymore though Oh, it's too bad. I really like, I mean, like, that's a, that's like high, high level petty, like, but like in yeah. such a beautiful way to like make a painting of an ex's face out of words, like different kinds of poison. Like, yeah. I actually, like, I salute you. Like, I congratulate you. Like, that might be the most beautifully petty piece of art I've ever Fleetwood no, Mac vibes. It's because I try not to. I try not to draw people that I think about. Mm. So it's almost an exercise in like turning my back to thoughts and ideas and faces that I I don't want to focus on. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I guess I guess before we go, I I mean I could talk to you a lot longer about all this. It's super interesting to me, but um, like what if what has all this time during quarantine like what what have you sort of what are the main things you've sort of settled on when you're thinking like thinking about your practice thinking about the world what you're hoping you'll come back to what you hope sort of 
falls away or dies in the process of all this? I mean, wh where's your head been the last two and a half months? Um, I So I've taken more time to like listen to a lot more podcasts these days. And one of them, <laughs> one that I listen to a lot is like a, a series of like philosophy podcasts to sort of brush up on my knowledge of different philosophers over time. But it's something that keeps coming up is like really uh, trying to define things that are hard to define. One of them being freedom. I've been thinking a lot about freedom and, and I'm sure that partly has to do with the time we're in and how like mm -hmm. just with other people's different perception of what it means to be free. Like being mm -hmm. free maybe means going out in public without a mask um, and protesting or, or something for not being able to go out or something. Uh, but then, there, yeah, there's just so many versions of it. And I'm trying to, I, yeah, I was trying to hone in on like what it is. And one way I've been thinking about it is like, is there a way that we're all, all free at some level? Mm -hmm. And I was thinking this idea that we're all free to interpret some whatever we're experiencing and we can interpret it any way we want. Um, and I think that's what a lot of, that's what I can see a lot of people exercising. Somebody could look at the same condition or situation um, several people can look at it and all walk away with a different interpretation of it. And oftentimes it's a willful interpretation, like a decision to uh, reject one way of seeing it in favor of another way of seeing it. And I think mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's just so fascinating with our sort of like political system and, and the way we have to talk and um, negotiate through things. Uh, Really, yeah, really understanding like that is a version of freedom and that we all have and thinking about how far too many people are irresponsible with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Responsible with that freedom. You know, uh, I have found during quarantine that I've actually gone, this is going to sound maybe opposite of what you're saying, but I found that in order for me to maintain any level of like, you know, mental health, um, I, I, I am not like, you know, some people are like, it's okay to wear sweatpants all day and like be on the couch and just watch like 10 hours of Netflix. Like I, I cannot do that. Like I'm on probably the strictest diet I've ever been on. I exercise the most, like my house is really clean. I have a bedtime that I've given myself. I have a time that I like wake up. And it's funny because I, we are, human beings are like these little animals, right? To some degree. And I found that like finding my freedom is actually through the imposition of a lot of structure, which I, I guess I didn't really realize before this, how important it was for me. So I've kind of gone in the opposite direction. I don't know. I look at a lot of memes and they're all about like starting to drink at 11 a.m. and like doing all this shit. And I'm like, 
no, I, I am the opposite. Like the only way I can find a path through this hardship is to, to, in, to recreate to an extent my own universe, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a fantastic idea because, uh, uh, yeah, there is this idea that, that limitations or parameters offer us more freedom than we tend to think. And I think with structure and limitation, the way you sort of move through the boundaries and the edges, that's a way of also, um, yeah, experiencing another kind of freedom, another way of understanding it. Amen. <laughs> well, this has been, you know what? We're already, um, we're already at an hour. I told you, I, I, I knew this was going to happen. I predicted it. I going to happen. I'm like, I have nothing to say for 45 minutes straight or an hour. <laughs> yes, you do. Um, this was I, fun. Yeah. You should come, yeah. you should come back on. <laughs> I'd, love I'd love to. This um, is great. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking to us about your work and um, giving giving me a lot to think about uh and I'm, i hope our audience too i i feel like um you know we we have we all have the privilege to one extent or another right now to um to think you know like our 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 spaces have been reduced you know we're not, we, we're not as um, distracted by traffic and by, you know, appoint, an appointment here, then an appointment there, blah, blah, blah. And, and I feel like the pandemic, if there's anything good that's come out of this, it's that I've had the chance to sort of fall back in love with art and give myself space to think about these things. And um, it's been a real privilege listening to you talk about your, your practice today. Thanks. It was a pleasure talking to you both. Gunnar, we'll have to talk about you more next time. <laughs> For sure. It's been great oh being God. just a fly on the wall hearing you guys talk. This has been awesome. <laughs> Do you have anything you want to say, Gunnar, before we go? I'm sorry we railroaded you. <laughs> no. Thank you and good night. <laughs> All right, girl. Uh, thank you for coming on and we will um, hopefully, like, maybe in a month or so if well hopefully the world will be back and we can actually like meet for coffee in like a month but if not you know it'd be great to have you back on the podcast i'd love it okay cool oh and will you do me yeah, a favor sure will you you don't have to do it now but will you recommend someone that you think would be great to have on the podcast and introduce me to them yeah sure Absolutely. An artist or not necessarily? It doesn't have to be an artist, but let's say an articulate thinker. Okay. <laughs> cool. All right, Kentora, thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Talk to you soon. Bye.